Hello, and welcome to the Biggest Questions podcast. I'm Jeffrey Stackert. And I'm Kevin Hector. And it's a pleasure to welcome our guest today. He is William Schultz, who is a historian of American religion. He's currently a fellow in the Charles Warren Center for Studies in American History at Harvard University. And it's a special uh, privilege for us to welcome him to the podcast because he's also our new colleague at the Divinity School at the University of Chicago, where Will will be uh, starting this fall, Assistant Professor of Religions in the Americas. So Will, uh, welcome to the Biggest Questions podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, the pleasure is really all ours. Uh, we wanna talk with you uh, today about your research and specifically about the research that you've uh, been doing. And I know that you have a forthcoming book uh, that deals with the topic of uh, evangelical Christianity uh, and its intersections with economics and law and politics. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, the uh, working title of the forthcoming book is Jesus Springs, How Colorado Springs Became the Capital of the Culture Wars. Is that correct? That's right. It's gone through a lot of changes as it started life as a dissertation, but uh, that is the current title that has held pretty stable and God willing, that's going to be the final title. Very nice. Very nice. Well, so tell us a little bit, give us uh, an entree into uh, this topic of uh, Jesus Springs. Absolutely. So Colorado Springs is a medium-sized city located, as you won't be surprised to learn, in Colorado, uh, that in the 1990s and 2000s gained a reputation as the capital city of American evangelicalism. And it got this reputation because it was home to dozens of evangelical Christian ministries, radio stations, publishing houses, missionary enterprises, denominational headquarters, all kinds of these ministries gathered together in this city at the foot of Pikes Peak. And it wasn't just the number of evangelical institutions which made the city unique. It was also the influence because Colorado Springs was home to focus on the family which if you're not uh, familiar with it, is one of the most significant evangelical Christian media ministries of the past couple of decades. Run or founded and run by uh, James Dobson, a former pediatrician, uh, Focus reached millions and millions of listeners providing advice on family living. The city was also home to New Life Church, which uh, one journalist described as the most influential megachurch in America. So this city was a hub for evangelical Christianity. And my book tries to explain how Colorado Springs became, as some people nicknamed it, uh, Jesus Springs. And it's a story that starts well before the 1990s. It traces it back to the 1940s and 50s when local boosters in the city of Colorado Springs uh, start to look for 
outside industries to diversify the economy. And they realize that in evangelical Christian ministries, there is a kind of industry that's going to bring in, uh, it's going to be non-polluting, it's going to have a well-educated workforce. So they begin recruiting these ministries to their city. And at the same time, these evangelical Christian institutions are attracted by the economic factors in Colorado Springs. It's a very cheap place to be. And many of these ministries are doing their best to cut costs, but they also like the culture. They see it as a city that's uh, patriotic. It's home to lots of military organizations. They see it as separate from the kind of urban sprawl of the New York area, of the Los Angeles area. And so over the decades, they flock there by the dozens. And as each one arrives, it helps draw in more of those Christian ministries. So by the 1990s, you get a bit of a critical mass there. And some evangelicals in that city start to use it as a platform for political organization. They want to transform the United States the way that they transformed Colorado Springs. So in the 1990s then, the city becomes kind of a touchstone for your political identity, depending on whether you see it as a Christian utopia or as a right-wing dystopia. So that is the story I'm telling in this book. So let me ask as a follow-up on that, it sounds like from what you're describing, there's part of this story that uh, is sort of intentionally configured. And then there's a part uh, that, you know, maybe snowballs on its own. To the extent that this is understood as a kind of social experiment, you know, what would an evangelical Christian city look like? Is there an attempt to treat this as a model that might be exported? Uh, is that, I guess I'm asking about, you know, the extent to which this is done intentionally uh, and what the ambition is. Yeah. At first, there's very little intentional about it. In the 1940s and 1950s, when the first Christian ministries moved there, groups like the Navigators, which ministers to college students and people in the military or young life, which evangelizes high school students. It's a very ad hoc seat of the pants sort of thing. They happen to know a real estate agent in Colorado Springs where they happen to know a pastor in Colorado Springs. And so it's very much by chance. In the 1990s, once you have a solid foundation there, then people do become more intentional about offering the city as a model for what a Christian community could look like. And it's New Life Church, which is a charismatic non-denominational megachurch led by uh, Ted Haggard, who before his uh, downfall due to uh, sex and drug scandal in 2006, was one of the most influential pastors in the United States. And he offers Colorado Springs to Christian communities throughout the United States 
end the world with the idea of we, the people of New Life Church and other evangelical Christians, conquered what was once a hostile territory. Haggard emphasizes um, that Colorado Springs was once a haven for witchcraft and the occult, which is not quite true, but it made for a compelling narrative that he was able to offer. And so New Life and allied groups exported this vision of conquest, of taking over a city through aggressively asserting an evangelical presence in public space. And it, it naturally receives a lot of media attention. There is an NPR, This American Life Story, about uh, new life and the evangelical movement there. So by the 1990s, it's not just evangelical Christians themselves who are offering the city as a model. The media, religious media, but also more secular media, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, they're also looking to Colorado Springs as this is what evangelicalism looks like. So the creation of Colorado Springs as Jesus Springs is not just an evangelical phenomenon. It's also about non-evangelicals thinking about what this kind of Christianity is and what it means. So I have a, what I take to be a follow-up question. Um, to frame this, here's a story that I think is a standard story, and if it's wrong, you can correct me. You're the historian. But um, the standard story goes something like this. Around the beginning, first half of the 20th century, what we now call evangelicals were much more fundamentalistic, um, much more sort of withdrawn from cultural influence, took themselves to be more withdrawn from cultural influence. Somewhat intentionally, there's a transition around the middle of the 20th century to taking on more cultural influence and doing so more intentionally. Uh, sometimes that's identified with Carl F.H. Henry and others. But what strikes me about Colorado Springs and the movement you're talking about is this is very self-consciously a group of evangelicals who want to be influencing culture. And I'd be interested to hear you say more about the arc of that, right? So you talk about the early earliest period of this. It sounds like this wasn't uh, at least intentionally a culturally influencing group. It grows in influence as evangelicalism does through the late 80s, early 90s, the heyday of <laughs> evangelical influence, right? And then I suspect that that arc goes somewhere as evangelicalism's broader influence wanes, um, right? So is there a retrenchment, a sense of embattledness? So I would just be interested to hear you trace this arc by the lights of that kind of story. Yeah. And I would say that art, which has been laid out and explored by uh, many great historians of religion in America is very much correct. A story about self-conscious effort to create an identity called evangelical, mm -hmm. something which will bring together previously disparate and very fractious religious communities. And no one quite epitomizes that like Billy Graham in yeah. the 40s and 50s. So I think it's very uh, worth noting that Graham considers moving to Colorado Springs in the 1940s and 
Americans. Hmm. He looks at buying a mansion in uh, the city and using it as a kind of conference center and headquarters. Hmm. He doesn't follow through on that, but he hands over the property to the navigators who are closely associated with, with Graham and his enterprise. And these groups that arrive in Colorado Springs, even before the 1990s, when the reputation is solidified, there is a peculiar combination of a sense of both embattlement, but also a sense of being able to transform the culture. The notion is that by removing yourself from other centers of culture, the kind of secular culture of say New York City and withdrawing to this mountain hideaway in Colorado Springs. And the landscape here is very important. It is a beautiful mountainous area, Pikes Peak towers right over the city, the Garden of the Gods, which is a magnificent sandstone park is right nearby. It provides a sense of Here's a place where you can get away. Here's a place where you can immerse yourself in a fully Christian atmosphere. And it's telling that so many of the first Christian ministries to move there are educational ventures of one kind or another. Another significant one is um, an organization called Summit Ministries, which is associated with Billy James Hargis, who is a very devout anti-communist preacher. And Summit Ministries, its goal is to educate the Christian leaders of tomorrow to get out the sort of, quote unquote, Marxist brainwashing that they are receiving in colleges and giving them a new and Christian education and then sending them out into the world to transform it. So Colorado Springs is seen as both kind of a, a hideaway, but also a headquarters that kind of transformation. And the, the end of that arc, um, you mentioned the waning of evangelical influence. And you can see that as well in Colorado Springs. One of the striking things is that in the 1990s, the same business leaders, the boosters and chamber of commerce types who recruited these Christian ministries to the city in the first place, begin to turn against them because they believe that if their city gains a reputation for social conservatism, it's going to hurt their ability to attract outside capital. The city is trying to diversify. It's trying to bring in high tech companies and they figure engineers and scientists won't want to move to a place called Jesus Springs. Hmm. So one of the ironies of this story is the limits you find on evangelical power, even in a city that is nicknamed the Evangelical Vatican. Mm -hmm. So if economic factors help create this hub, they also put limits on its power. Yeah, and if I could just follow up, how have evangel by and large, how have evangelicals there responded to no longer being the insiders in Colorado Springs? Well, the culture wars of the 1990s in the city, which were fought in particular over gay rights, left a lot of scars. And 
many of the evangelical institutions in that city began to take a more conciliatory tone. Hmm. They tamped down the aggressive culture war language. When James Dobson left the leadership of Focus on the Family, he was replaced by uh, Jim Daly, who, again, made a very concerted effort to work with non-evangelicals in the city. Uh, in the 1990s, there is this series launched called Dialogue Dinners, which is supposed to get evangelicals to sit down with uh, gay people to have a chance to talk with one another and see each other as human beings and not as enemies. So there is a concerted effort to turn the temperature down, so to speak. None of that means though that the city has become a liberal bastion in any sense. Donald Trump still won the county in 2020, in 2016. So while the outright conflict may have faded, it still remains a very conservative city. Can I ask about uh, the economic side of this a little bit more? Because on the one hand, you know, the story you tell makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, attracting people to the city with these ministries. Uh, on the other hand, if these are nonprofits, if the kinds of jobs that they're offering are relatively low paying, especially in comparison to something like high tech companies. Presumably, you know, there's a, a growth in the property tax base, you know, service industries are, you know, getting new patrons. But in terms of a, an economic plan for growth, how did this work? Did it work well? Yes, here's where the element of sort of chance comes into play, always an important element in history. In the 1980s, the city of Colorado Springs is the recipient of a huge amount of military spending. This is related to Ronald Reagan's strategic defense initiative, the kind of Star Wars idea. A lot of the infrastructure for that is supposed to have been built in Colorado Springs. So the boosters start selling the city. The boosters are very good at coming up with nicknames for it as the aerospace capital of the free world. Uh, but that proves less of a sure thing than they thought. The defense spending later in the 1980s causes a massive real estate crash, leaving tens of thousands of square feet of vacant office space and leaves the city with a much less enviable nickname, which is the foreclosure capital of America. The New York Times runs a front page story about how Colorado Springs is the center of all these foreclosures. So by the late 1980s, the Chamber of Commerce of Colorado Springs are, are quite desperate. And even if these nonprofit jobs are perhaps not quite as well-paying as, say, a job with Apple or IBM, they still jump at the opportunity to recruit them. And it's made easier by the fact that one of the key figures in the Chamber of Commerce, a woman named Alice Worrell, is herself an evangelical Christian. And as she says, she can speak the language of these groups. They realize that the people in Colorado Springs realize that 
not many other cities are competing for these kind of ministries. So they have a chance to rack up a lot of prizes, so to speak, without a lot of competition. It's not the arrival of these ministries that pulls the city out of the economic slump of the 1980s. That is achieved by the arrival of larger companies in the 1990s. Um, again, Apple opens up a manufacturing plant nearby. So the change is more, the change wrought by these ministries is more cultural than economic, even though the Chamber of Commerce does hope for some kind of economic boom. And as you said, it, it does produce several hundred jobs. It fills vacant office space. There's lots of uh, foreclosed property throughout Colorado Springs that evangelical institutions move into. Uh, so there's an interesting story about the relationship between real estate and religion going on here. So I'm, I'm wondering about one of the things that you talked about is that this is a pretty intentional act on the side of Colorado Springs boosters, and there's not a lot of competition. But I wonder if there are other communities, other cities that see this and think, oh, we could do something like that. And partly I'm just wondering more broadly about this kind of pattern, a pattern of a community trying to woo a a particular group, a religious group. It could be a group of uh, immigrant community that, that identifies with a particular religion. There's lots of ways to do it. Um, but I'm wondering what kind of patterns you as a historian see that look like this. And in the light of those patterns, what you can see about the difference that it makes that this is an evangelical version of it, as opposed to if you had, you know, tried to attract Orthodox Jews, or you had tried to attract, you know, um, a, a immigrant Muslim community or, or whatever it is, right? Yeah. So in terms of recruiting these religious institutions, there's no place that does it quite as thoroughly or as successfully as the Springs does, but there are plenty of cities and communities that make some effort to it. A notable example is with the organization Campus Crusade for Christ, which by the 1980s is looking to move out of its original home in Southern California for the reason, like many of these ministries, it has outgrown its property there and can't afford to buy a new property in California. Campus Crusade originally thinks about moving to Colorado Springs but they ultimately decide on Orlando instead because a group of local businessmen there in Orlando offer them financial incentives, offer them free property, a couple hundred acres, and that seals the deal for a campus crusade. They tear up their plans to move to Colorado and wind up moving to Florida instead. There are similar clusters of evangelical institutions that you can find in Cary, North Carolina, attracts a lot of them. Phoenix, Arizona brings in a lot. And then there is the sort of classic evangelical cluster 
in Wheaton, Illinois, home of Wheaton College, one of the most important evangelical Christian schools. And the trend that you see from the 1940s onward is a trend not unlike you see in the movement of people and businesses in general, shifting from the urban Northeast and Midwest into what is termed the Sun Belt. Florida, the Southeast, Texas, and Colorado. So this religious migration is imitative of uh, many broader demographic changes. As to other religious groups, I think one of the noteworthy things about evangelical Christianity is the very uh, fractured nature of a lot of these activities. The fact that there are so many of these small ministries, because most of these ministries, the ones that moved to Colorado Springs are quite small, one or two or three or four people, often embodying the vision of a founder. And so that creates a religious space with lots of small, almost shoestring operations. So it's not surprising that they're going to seek out a much cheaper place. Uh, and uh, whatever one can say about Colorado Springs, and there are lots of good things to be said about it for sure, one of its greatest strengths is the low cost of living. And so if you are running a publishing company that is just you and one other person run out of your basement, you might as well move to Colorado for that and save uh, a heck of a lot of money. Well, can I follow up on this? Uh, I'm interested uh, to explore a little bit more uh, what you described as this fractured quality or this decentralized quality of evangelical Christianity in America. Because I think if you would ask a lot of people right now about evangelicalism, they would see it as much more unified, uh, especially politically. You know, the number that keeps getting thrown around is 80% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. There's a kind of unification, uh, I think, in the, the, you know, the common discussion or the, 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 the popular discussion uh, about evangelicalism in America. Do you see a change uh, that's taken place, say, during you know, the, the intervening time from uh, when you're uh, describing what's going on in Colorado Springs to the present? How do you, how do you make sense of that? It's a difficult circle to square, but the way I would understand it is that many of these ministries are not political in nature. You couldn't classify a lot of the ones that move to Colorado Springs as part of the Christian realm. So it's important to make a distinction there between evangelical Christianity as a broad phenomenon and the Christian right as a political phenomenon. Lots of the ministries in Colorado Springs are ones that are not explicitly political in nature. Publishing companies, associations of Christian summer camps, radio stations. They are religious, but they don't have a specific political agenda. So they are trying to serve an evangelical community. They're trying to, in many cases, provide alternatives to secular 
services, but they don't break the evangelical community apart in political terms. They aren't expressing a variety of political viewpoints. And part of the story of Colorado Springs, part of the larger story that Kevin alluded to near the beginning of our conversation is the formation of this distinct and unified evangelical identity. And that is what some of the more influential actors in Colorado Springs are trying to bring about. James Dobson and Focus on the Family, for instance. Dobson's goal is very clearly to make religion, make evangelical Christianity synonymous with social conservatism. And in the 1990s and 2000s, he begins putting a lot of pressure on Republican politicians to um, follow his vision of conservatism. And so throughout the 90s and 2000s, it becomes a rite of passage for Republican presidential candidates to make a pilgrimage to Colorado Springs to meet with Dobson and to try to win, if not his endorsement, at least his favor. So you have this universe of smaller ministries, but you also have a couple very large and very influential organizations who are trying to bring about the kind of unity, this political unity that you alluded to with the 80% voting for Donald Trump statistics. So this, just to follow up on that, it's it strikes me that there is a kind of parallel. I don't know how, you can tell me how connected these are, but there's a parallel between the sort of economic wooing of evangelicals and a political wooing of evangelicals. We can think of it as Rovianism or it predates Karl Rove, right? But there's a strategic and intentional um courting of evangelicals because it's a it's a block of votes that you you can get on your side um but the story you're telling just now makes it sound like there's a little bit of a two-way street at least at the level of some a powerful figure like james dobson influencing the very politicians who are then going to try to court the evangelical vote can you disentangle some of this or, or shed a little bit more light on um what, what kind of dance is going on between evangelicals and uh, Republican Party or just conservative politics more generally? So much of it is about how much priority the Republican Party should give to what are broadly referred to as social issues. Mm -hmm. uh, LGBTQ rights, abortion rights, and part of the dance between the Republican Party and evangelical Christians, especially power brokers like James Dobson and Ted Haggard, the pastor of New Life Church, is in the 1990s over the question of how will the Republican Party prioritize these questions? Mm -hmm. The Republican Party had always been socially conservative, but does it want to make these the most important issues? And so the 1992 election is very important on this front. Is George H.W. Bush, 
who is not in any sense seen as a culture warrior. He's a very old line country club Republican. Nonetheless, as he is facing these economic headwinds in 1992, part of his response and part of the response of many Republicans is to reach out to this potentially untapped reservoir of votes of social conservatives. The 1992 Republican National Convention is where Pat Buchanan gives his speech about the culture war, the war going on for the soul of America. And it's also in 1992 that the culture war really comes to Colorado Springs, which is when a group of of Christian activists located there put forward a amendment to the Colorado Constitution called Amendment 2, which would overturn all gay rights laws in the state. And much of the surprise of pollsters and observers, it passes. Colorado voters approve it, even as they're voting for Bill Clinton. And so conservative Christian activists hold this up as a sign of, look, fighting against LGBT rights is a winning issue. He can deliver this to you if you work with us on us. So that is kind of a, a seen as proof that embracing social conservatism is what the Republican Party is, what the next step ought to be. And that enhances the prestige of people like Dobson. Well, this is one of the things that I really wanted to ask you about in thinking about having this conversation uh, in talking about uh, this mix of evangelicalism and the culture wars and Republican politics. There's a way in which we're also experiencing uh, a new version of culture wars, uh, which is similar to, but also somewhat different from um, those earlier culture wars of 30 years ago. Uh, and the question I really wanted to ask you is, what do you see for the future uh, of American evangelicalism? Now that uh, there's just been this experience of a loss of the presidency, a loss of Congress, and so, you know, maybe uh, you know, not a loss of interest in political influence, uh, but what do you see for American evangelicalism going forward? I don't see any remarkable shifts in the near future. Throughout recent American history, there's always the hope by many on the left that there will be some kind of evangelical crackup and that some evangelicals or at least white evangelicals will abandon the Republican party and will come over to, um, to the Democratic party, will move left. That's never really happened. And I don't see that happening in the future. It's, it's sort of remarkable that even now with Trump out of office, with his popularity lower than ever before, still not a lot of prominent evangelical leaders have jumped ship or broken with him. There are obviously exceptions, but if there isn't a transformation now, I'm not sure what would make it happen. 
For me, I think the key thing is what will the response to this evangelical unity look like? Because one of the remarkable things that happened in Colorado Springs in the 1990s is kind of a peculiar alliance of business leaders and progressive activists campaigning, not necessarily for gay rights, but against going after gay rights, a kind of libertarian leave us alone approach. And now in the United States at large, especially as the number of religiously non-affiliated people continues to grow, what I wonder is, will they organize the way people like Dobson and people before him like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson tried and mostly succeeded at organizing evangelical Christians or white evangelical Christians into a solid block. So that interplay between conservative evangelical Christians and a potential counterweight on the left is what I think the main story of religion and politics is gonna be over the next decade. So I'm curious about two things in this connection. One, you talk about a bunch of important figures, none of whom are still in power, so to speak, right? There, there is no J Billy Graham, there's no Dobson, there's no Fall, well, there's always Fallwells, but, um, Right, like the figureheads you mentioned, Ted Haggard had a, a significant fall from power, right? And it's not clear who the sort of next generation of leaders would be, or even if there is such a thing, right? So that's one just follow-up question. And if that and if that changes, does that change the nature of um, the way these fragmentary uh, lines of evangelicalism could come together? The other is, I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about um, disaffected evangelicals. There's a fair number of people within evangelicalism who've left evangelicalism or who, who are evangelical, but they would never accept that name because that name has become so associated with a certain kind of politics, right? Um, I would just be interested to hear you say a little bit more about that dynamic too. Yeah, to answer the first one, well, you can never rule out the possibility of some hitherto unknown or obscure charismatic figure playing a role similar to Billy Graham. I think the leaders are just as likely to be politicians as they are to be ministers. I hmm. think it's telling that Graham and Falwell and Robertson were all ministers. Mm -hmm. But then a later generation, Dobson, for instance, Dobson was not a minister. Dobson uh, was a, a trained pediatrician. And I think future people who can unite an evangelical constituency are going to be politicians rather than ministers. So a figure like Ted Cruz or maybe Josh Hawley will 
again, they will not ascend to the level of Billy Graham, most likely, but they, I think, have a skill in using the sort of rhetoric that people like Falwell and Robertson use to kind of weld together this constituency. And as to disaffected evangelicals, yeah, I think one of the other things to go back to Jeff's question is we will probably see a general fading away, maybe not total fading away, but I'd say a reduction of the very use of the term evangelical, in part because it's now become so inescapably political. And even relatively conservative people now are issuing the term. People disaffected from that community while they will continue, while their theology might not change, the language that they use, I think likely will. That's one of the advantages of taking a kind of longer historical view of this whole story. You can see how categories that we think of, that many people think of as kind of natural, evangelical, like it's obvious what it means. Well, no, it's, it's very much a product of recent history, and that doesn't mean it will be around forever. It could very possibly uh, pass out of language the way fundamentalist generally did. This has been a, a fantastic conversation, and I want to ask you, uh, in closing, uh, the question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, in your work uh, that you're doing on uh, American evangelicalism, uh, what is your biggest question? My biggest question is what makes the United States distinctive? Why for so long has the US been by most measures much more religious than so many other industrialized and wealthy nations like France or Germany or Japan? And why is the US also often more conservative in political terms? more opposed to welfare spending, more open to laissez-faire capitalism? And what's the relationship between those? And I think figuring that out has a lot to do with understanding communities like Colorado Springs. This very unusual, uh, at least outside the United States, fusion of devout Christianity, of military power, you know, the city is the home to uh, an army base, two air force bases, the Air Force Academy, and to free market capitalism. So asking that question doesn't mean embracing American exceptionalism. I know the US is not some magical world removed from forces that affect other countries. But answering that question does help you think about broader global questions. To know what makes the United States different, you have to ask, well, why did things happen the way that they did in Europe or in East Asia? So what I'm getting at in this project, in my own small way, is why did the United States through much of the 20th century and into the 21st remain such a religious, nation in comparison with other countries. And we'll see once the book comes out whether I've gotten 
any closer to giving a provisional answer to that. <laughs> That's great. It seems evident that you certainly are getting us closer to an answer to that. And it's a really compelling question and your work is interesting and important. So I'd love to talk to you longer, but we promised we wouldn't take up too much of your time. So we will let you go on this. Uh, we give all of our guests a chance to make a public service announcement. And it consists in this. What do you wish people outside of your field understood either about the kind of work that you do or understood about your subject matter? This is what I would say. And I hope in saying this, I'm not undoing everything that I said previously. It's <laughs> to avoid theological determinism. That there's a tendency when you see, when people see an evangelical Christian do something, do anything, uh, whether it's voting or the kind of movies they watch, it's easy to say, oh, they're doing that because they are an evangelical Christian. But people are complicated and they do things for a lot of reasons. So an evangelical Christian may vote for Trump for reasons that have nothing to do with their religious beliefs. They might watch movies, they might read books, they might send their kids to school in a way that is not about their religious position, but about their class position, about whether they're white or black or uh, native born or an immigrant. So recognizing that complexity, avoiding theological determinism, and sort of related to that is my other advice would be for everyone to read more of the late great historian Leo Rubuffo, who came up with that theological determinism term. I've been greatly influenced by his writing. And so the more people who read his books, the better. That's great. Thanks, Will. This has been the Biggest Questions podcast, and our guest has been William Schultz. Uh, thank you so much uh, for being with us, and uh, we hope you'll come back and talk with us again. It's been great. Thanks so much.